Well, good morning, Lakewood. When I found out earlier this week I was going to have the opportunity to preach for Sunday, I started thinking about what is it that God would have us look at together. And pretty quickly, my mind went to a story that I heard in an Alistair Begg sermon once that he relayed about two uh, believers who were walking along and talking to each other about some of their favorite passages that brought them comfort in the midst of fear. And I might remember it because he's got this great thick Scottish accent that he used to tell it that I will not try to emulate because I would just embarrass myself. But these two men are walking and the one says, you know, a favorite passage of mine is when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. And the second gentleman, an older gentleman says, hmm, excellent passage, very comforting, an excellent reminder. But I prefer the passage in Isaiah that says, I will trust and not be afraid. And I think my mind went to this story because I love the idea that in God's word, in scripture, we have both of these ideas. When I trust, when I am afraid, I will trust. And also, I will trust and not be afraid. I don't know about you, but I'm in the when I am afraid camp as least as often, if not much more so than when I'm in the uh, I will trust and not be afraid camp. If I had to guess for many of us, fear has been at least a visitor, if not a near constant companion in these past weeks. And I'm grateful that scripture doesn't ignore this reality of fear in our lives, but rather that Scripture speaks directly to us and gives us tools to remind us that uh, any fear we have always pales in comparison to God's power and his promises. And because of that, choosing to trust in him is never foolish. This morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 56, quoted by one of the gentlemen in the story who said, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. Psalm 56 says this. It starts out, for the director of music to the tune of a dove on distant oaks of David, a miktam, when the Philistines had seized him in Gath. Be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? All day long they twist my words. All their schemes are for my ruin. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps, hoping to take my life. Because of their wickedness, do not let them escape. In your anger, God, bring the nations down. Record my misery. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this, I will know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God, I trust and am not afraid. What can man do? I am under vows to you, my God. I will present my thank offerings to you. For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling. 
that I may walk before God in the light of life. Father, we thank you for your word that is uh, both ancient and amazingly present to us. We ask, Father, that as we look to it this morning, you would instruct us on who you are, on what it means to follow you, and how we might do so well in the world in which we live today. Amen. You know, it's nice that some psalms start out telling us what's going on in them. They give us the context, and Psalm 56 is one of those. It says uh, that David wrote it, and it says that he wrote it when the Philistines had seized him in Gath. Let's start out this morning by just taking a look at when that period of time was in David's life to get a sense of the context in which he wrote this. Easiest way to do this is grab uh, the YouVersion app or BibleGateway.com, whatever you use when you're looking for a specific passage of Scripture, and punch Gath in there. When you do that, you'll see that Gath appears a number of times in the book of First Samuel, and the first one of those where it intersects with David and his life is in First Samuel chapter 17. And this is the story of David and Goliath. And I can tell you, I know for sure, that whether you have been in church since you were a baby or you have never opened the Bible, I know you know the story of the shepherd boy David who, against all odds and in the power of God, goes out and defeats the big bad giant Goliath. God's with David. You've heard that story before. Uh, But... I don't know if I had heard, and if I did, I know that I had forgotten this little detail in 1 Samuel 17, verse 4. And the detail is this. Goliath was from the town of Gath. Scroll down a little in your list of results uh, on the city of Gath in 1 Samuel, and you'll see that the next time that this city, Goliath's hometown, is mentioned is in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10, where it says, Now that day David fled from Saul, and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, are you thinking what I'm thinking here? Like, David, was that really the best place to go to? You're afraid for your life because you're running from Saul who wants to kill you, and the place you're going to go is the hometown of the champion who you killed in battle years ago. Well, Maybe you're saying, okay, let, let's look a little closer. Maybe it makes sense. So you flip over to 1 Samuel 21, and you're reading before verse 10, and you see that uh, before David goes to Gath, he flees to this city of Nob, and he talks to one of the priests of God, and he gets there some supplies that he needs for his journey, and he gets there also a sword. And in, uh, chapter, in 1 Samuel 21, verse 9, it says, The priest replied, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the the valley of Elah, is here. It it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want, take it. There's no sword here but that one. So David is going. He's looking for some supplies. He needs a sword. He goes to the priest. The priest says, sorry, the only sword I've got is, is Goliath's old sword. If you want it, you can have it. David says, sure, I'll take that sword. And then he thinks it's a good idea wearing Goliath's sword to go to Goliath's hometown because somebody behind him saw the king wants to kill him. 
let me read some parts of Psalm 56 again, and let's hear these words now with that in the back of our head. My enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. All day long, they twist my words with their schemes. All their schemes are for my ruin. They conspire. They lurk. They watch my steps, hoping to take my life. 1 Samuel 21 describes David as being in their hands when he went to Gath. This psalm says that he had been seized in Gath. It takes no imagination whatsoever to arrive at the conclusion that David saying that his adversaries were hoping to take his life wasn't just a metaphor, it wasn't a figure of speech, it was reality. And not only uh, we're remembering that the Philistines who were at Gath wanted to kill David, but David is running for his life when he gets there. It's in this spot when he had jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire. When I imagine he's looking around saying, oh, shoot, how did I get here? What, what have I gotten myself into? It's in this spot that David says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. The fear that David has pales in comparison to the power and the promises of God. Now, I, there's something here that I don't want us to miss this morning, Lakewood. David is afraid. He says it plainly. There's no mistaking it. When I am afraid. You don't say that if you don't feel fear. Perhaps you've read or you've seen things, kind of like the commentary from Willem van Gemmeren, who in commenting on this passage says this. He says, difficult as life is, the psalmist has learned to trust in the Lord. Fear is there, and Van Gimmeren then says, but he neither feels it nor stares at his problems, but looks to his Redeemer who will deliver him. This drive to sweep fear under the rug is understandable. But I have to disagree with this commentator and say that trying to uh, explain this away as saying that David didn't feel fear simply is not warranted by what Scripture says. Pretending that trusting God means that we don't fear just isn't true, and it's not helpful. David felt fear. He doesn't deny it, and we don't need to deny it either. I want to talk with you some this morning about fear. If we're going to understand how to respond to fear in line with Scripture, if we're going to understand how to bring our fear under the power and promises of God, I think we do well to first understand a little bit of what fear itself is. 
According to the concise Oxford English Dictionary, fear is an unpleasant emotion caused by the threat of danger, pain, or harm. At a basic level, when we're in a situation to believe, rightly or wrongly, that we might be in danger, we will likely, that we might experience loss, that we might experience pain, when we even believe there's a threat to us, we are going to likely experience the emotion of fear. It'll well up in us. It'll enter our heart. It'll enter our mind. Even in non-COVID times, the opportunities for fear abound. And although uh, that's the case, although fear is everywhere and the potential for it is all around us, we don't like to talk about fear. And a lot of times we don't even like to acknowledge it. I, th I think there's a couple of reasons for that. First off, right in the definition, we know that fear is an unpleasant emotion. We don't like feeling fear. It's not something uh, that we want to go toward. It's something that we're naturally going to avoid because we avoid things that are unpleasant. A and not only is it unpleasant, but fear is often seen as a sign of weakness. I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but I remember uh, when the no fear shirts were big back in the 90s and the decals and all over the place, no fear, no fear, I don't have any fear. Uh, the company went bankrupt, but the sentiment lives on. People want to put on a front that says, I'm not afraid of anything. Other people might get afraid, but not me. There's a third aspect, I think, for Christians especially that can make it hard to talk about fear. And that's that we know the consistent teaching of Scripture is that we are to fear God. And so often uh, in God's Word, we God tells people, do not be afraid. And because of these teachings of Scripture, and because we know what God's Word says, sometimes we have a fear that to even acknowledge the emotion of fear is going to show that somehow we're lacking in our commitment to Christ. Somehow our love for God or our spiritual maturity isn't what it should be. Friends, hear me this morning. There's nothing spiritually mature. There's nothing uh, biblically required about pretending that our emotions don't exist or about remaining willfully ignorant of them. We need not, we should not be driven by our emotions. But that doesn't mean that following Christ involves any attempt to do away with this emotional part of ourselves that is there. God made us with emotions and attempting to amputate them, attempting to cut them off from our existence is to fight against God's good design and it's to fight against how he created us in his image. David gets that. Throughout the Psalms and here in Psalm 56 as an example, uh, David is acknowledging he's expressing his emotions. We see this not only with the Psalms, not only with David, but we see it with Jesus himself. Jesus is an emotional person. Throughout his ministry, he is expressing a variety of emotions. And in Gethsemane, he feels these emotions 
at a very deep, profound level. Mark records that Jesus was deeply distressed and troubled. And that Jesus himself says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That is nothing if not an expression of emotion from our Lord Jesus Christ. If we're going to bring our emotions in line with our faith, we must first acknowledge them and work to understand them. To pretend that David didn't fear is to ignore what the text is telling us. And to pretend that we don't fear is to miss an opportunity to live out all of our lives under the direction of God. I like how John Calvin puts it in his commentary on this passage of Scripture when he says this. He says, David makes no pretensions to that lofty heroism which contemns or disregards danger. Yet while he allows that he felt fear, he declares his fixed resolution to persist in a confident expectation of the divine favor. The true proof of faith consists in this, that when we feel the solicitations of natural fear, we can resist them and prevent them from obtaining an undue ascendancy. Calvin is reminding us that faith isn't about pretending that fear doesn't exist, but rather when fear would come our way, being able to stop that fear from gaining the upper hand. So, what is our fear? How can we acknowledge it? How can we understand it so that we can remember that God's promises, that God's power are always greater than our fear? How can we understand it better so that we can move away from fear, so that fear doesn't have ascendancy, but instead that we can go to trust? I'm indebted to Darren DeVries, a licensed marriage and family uh, therapist, uh, for some of his insights and just how we can think about, how we can understand fear. I want to ask you this morning, stop and think about it for a minute. When is the last time in your life you felt fear? Let's start just by acknowledging it. Maybe maybe you were cutting down a tree, a a dead jack pine in your backyard, let's say, and you realized that your uh, skills with a chainsaw aren't quite as great as you would hope that they were, and you're looking up at that jack pine and... I'm wondering, I mean, you hypothetically are wondering, which way is that thing going to fall? How's this going to turn out? Maybe you were driving a little too fast and you see the police officer pull out behind you and you're thinking, oh, my parents are going to kill me if I get another speeding ticket. Maybe you're trying unsuccessfully to understand your child's homework. And you realize that if you can't figure it out, they might think less of you. And even worse, if if you can't figure it out, if you can't give them the help that they're looking for, they're going to struggle in this subject. And you're just afraid. Maybe you're checking your temp and you realized you were running a fever. Or you were talking to your elderly parents and you were thinking they're coughing more than they were yesterday. 
Maybe the last time you felt fear was driving into work thinking, is today going to be the day that I get that pink slip? Or you were looking at your income and expense report for your business, trying to figure out how to hold off on handing out those pink slips. There are any number of situations that would cause us to feel threatened. That would be occasions for fear. We do well to start out by simply acknowledging it. Wow, there's a danger there, and I'm afraid. And once we acknowledge it, we can begin to understand it some. Think back to that last time you were afraid, and let's ask some questions. Uh, You could ask, is fear the right emotion for this situation? Is fear actually what I should be feeling? Or is there something else going on? Is this something where I have experienced loss? And maybe I just, maybe sadness is more appropriate. Maybe it's something where uh, the potential for loss is so far in the future and so remote that to experience the fear because of it just isn't, doesn't make sense right now. Is fear the right emotion to be feeling? Second question we can ask ourselves is the intensity of my fear warranted by the information that I have? Is the level of fear that I feel on the same level of the potential danger or threat that's out there? Or is my fear way up here for a danger that's in reality down here? Once we acknowledge our fear and we begin to ask some questions, we can begin to see where there might be a mismatch. Third question we can ask, am I holding on to this fear for longer than I need to? Maybe that threat is past, the the danger is gone, but there's still a fear in me and it still wells up when I find myself in a certain situation. Am I still afraid after the threat is gone? Am I holding on to that fear too long? And the last question we can ask to just help us understand our fear. Am I acting out of my fear in ways that don't match the fear or that simply don't help the situation? Our fear can be a helpful driving force. Our fear can push us to action when that's what we need to do. But if our fear is causing us to act in ways or in areas that aren't appropriate or aren't helpful, Stopping and just asking ourselves, okay, how are my actions being driven by fear? Can help bring our actions back in line with reality and then help us bring all of that under Scripture. Let's look some at our fear in light of Scripture. Having acknowledged our fear, having understood our fear a little bit better, a little bit differently, let's, let's look at it in light of this psalm. I love that David, I, I think, essentially gives us a road map for dealing with our fear, for bringing our fear under the authority of God's word. So let's look at what he does. First in verse 1, Be merciful to me, my God. David's afraid, and what does he do? He cries out to God. He makes a request to God. He talks to God, and he just simply asks, God, be merciful to me. God, look on me with favor. 
God, remember me here. That's a really good place to start. God, be merciful to me. God, remember me. God, help. When we're afraid, simply turning to God and making a request is an excellent place to start. Then, after that, it's interesting. David begins to recount why he's afraid. For my enemies are in hot pursuit. They press their attack against me. They pursue me all day long. Many are attacking me. See, I I love here that David isn't ignoring the danger. David isn't trying to stick his head in the sand. David is willing to look at it, and in so doing, he can understand his fear. He can uh, acknowledge reality. David is taking the time uh, to acknowledge the situation. And then he has this statement of resolve. Okay, I see the situation. I've cried out to God. Verse 3, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I love that David is really kind of speaking. He's speaking to God. He's saying, I put my trust in you, God. But he's, he's speaking to God kind of to himself. He, you can hear him saying to himself, wait, wait, wait. When I'm afraid, I'm going to trust in God. And then in verse 4, he shifts uh, totally away from talking to God to talking about God. In verse 4, he says, In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? It's like he's talking back to himself. He's quieting his own soul. He's telling himself, God is here. God's told me things. He's given me promises in his word to me. God is powerful. There, there's, there's mortal men, yes, but there is the immortal, everlasting, all-powerful God. He quiets himself by remembering God's power and God's promises. But the Psalms are so real. I, I love in verse 5, after David does this work of quieting his own heart, it's like the fear starts to well back up in him. He's, oh, but all day long they're twisting my words and their schemes are for my ruin and they, they're conspiring and they're lurking and they're watching my steps and they want to kill me. Isn't that the way our lives work? We see a situation. We cry out to God. We remember his power. We remember his promises. And the fear wells back up within us. Just because David has resolved to trust in God, just because he's remembered God's promises, doesn't mean that the situation has gone away. Doesn't mean that the fear has disappeared. It comes back. So what does David do in verse 7? Again, he remakes. He makes a request to God. And the process starts again. Friends, don't be afraid of starting the process again. If you've been afraid and you've moved to trust and the fear comes back up, you haven't failed. You just keep doing what you did. You keep turning back to God. You keep trusting Him. So in verse 7, David makes another request. Because of their wickedness, do not let them escape. In your anger, God, bring the nations down. 
this is a more specific request. It's a bigger request, a broader request. Instead of just, God, be merciful to me. Now he's saying, God, act. God, please do these things to rescue me. We can be specific in what we're asking God to do. We can trust him for real things that are going to really impact our life. God, please act in this way in my life to save me from this danger. And then in verse 8, David reminds himself of God's presence. The NIV says, record my misery, list your tears, my tears on your scroll. In the NIV, it's a request. It's interesting Essentially, all the other translations, it's not a request, it's a statement of fact. The ESV says it this way, you have kept count of my tossings. If you want to go back to the old King James, it says, thou tellest my wanderings. I think the better translation here is those other translations that, uh, that present verse 8, not as a request to God, but as a statement of what God has done, of what God is doing, a reminder of God's presence. God, you're with me. You know, you've seen, you've been there for my misery, for my wanderings, for my tossings, my sleepless nights. And God, the tears that I've cried in my fear and in my frustration and in my pain, you haven't forgotten them. You've been there with me. You've recorded them all. David remembers that God has been, that God is near. And when he does that, he can remember God's future deliverance. Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this I will know that God is for me. You know, I, I wonder in this, if David is perhaps recalling here a specific promise that God made to him. Uh, he talks about uh, in God whose word I praise. He talks about the word of God. And when we think about the word of God, of course, we think of scripture. But we have to remember that David didn't have this when he was recounting Psalm 56. David was writing this <laughs> psalm when he was recounting it. So for David, God's word was maybe something that he had heard from Samuel, perhaps, when he was being anointed king. Maybe David's thinking here about something that the priest told him when he went to God's, uh, God's house to get bread and the sword of Goliath. David would have been thinking about something different than we think about when we think about God's word. But what a reminder to us that in our situation, though the word of God that we have is different than the word that David had, how much more do we have to show us the power and promises of God? We have how David's story ended up. We have how God showed faithfulness to the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. We have how God loved us in sending Christ and showed his power in the death of Christ for our sin and his resurrection to buy us eternity with him. David is trusting in God's promises to him. And as he does, he can state God's future deliverance. Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. And by this I will know that God is for me. This will happen in the future. And as he's remembering God's promise again, his fear quiets. 
And he moves again into this statement of praise and this refrain of trust. In God I will trust and am not afraid. What can man do to me? And then after David moves through this and after he experiences this fear a couple of times and tamps it back down with God's power and promise, he resolves to take some next steps. And he determines that his next steps uh, are going to be what he has already promised to God to do. Verse 12, I am under vows to you, my God. I will present my thank offerings to you. Not only does David know that God has made him some promises, but David has made some promises to God. He said, God, I'm going to be grateful in this. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to give you thanks. And he's resolving to do just that. He's dedicating himself to taking action based on his confidence of God's provision. Here in verse 13, I love that he's talking about God's deliverance as if it has already happened. So great is his confidence in God's power and promises that he moves ahead in the actions he knows he should take. He's not overpowered by fear. He's not paralyzed by fear. David moves from fear to trust. And he provides a guide for us to do that as well. I want to close this morning simply dwelling on the power of God and recounting some of his promises to us. Think for a minute. What are your favorite reminders of God's power? When you're looking at the world around you and you're... um, seeing things that could go wrong. And you need to be reminded that God is in control. What are the things that are most helpful to you? Is it the reminder that God is not only powerful enough to make our amazing eyes that allow us to see the world, but he's powerful enough to give sight back to the blind? Do you love thinking about that God was not only powerful enough to craft water with all of its unique properties, uh, but that time and time again, he showed his power over it. He could make it pile up on itself when usually that's not what it's supposed to do. He could make it flow out of a rock where it had no business coming from. He could make it split in two so his people could pass through. Our God has power over wind and rain, hail and storms. He can speak into them into existence and he can tell them to be still. Our God is powerful enough to create the sun and set the planets in motion around it. And not only that, but he's powerful enough to command it all to stop or to reverse course when he deems fit. God is powerful enough to fling the stars into the sky simply by speaking them into existence and he holds all of them in place without breaking a sweat. Our God who created all of this and is powerful over the entire galaxy has promised us some things too. He's promised us he's not going to change. For all the uncertainty, for all the unknowns, he's promised us that he will be the same yesterday and today and forever. He's promised us that he not only knows and cares for common 
and fragile sparrow. But he knows and he cares for us. He sees us as well. He's promised us he'll never leave us. He'll never abandon us. He'll never forsake us. He's promised us that we need not be alone, but for those who love and trust in Jesus Christ, he will be with them and he will be in them always. And for his children, he has promised forgiveness from sin and healing from brokenness and shame. And he's promised that one day he will give new life to those who are trusting in him in resurrected bodies, on a remade earth, free of sin and sickness and brokenness and pain and death. He has promised to one day set all things back right. How beautiful it is, Lakewood, when God's people, as individuals and collectively, are able to not ignore the real dangers that they face, Not to disregard threats that are there, but to move past the fear that would come into trusting God. To move to that place where they're remembering God's power, where they're grabbing hold of God's promises, and they're trusting Him for all that they need. When we're there, it frees us up. It frees us to act out of a gratitude for who God is. It frees us to act in obedience to Him and love for our neighbors around us. Lakewood, let's be a church. Let's be a people who don't try to ignore fear, but also don't give in to it and are willing to remember God's power, God's promises, and trust Him no matter what circumstances we face. So, Father, we come to you this morning with no shortage of reasons to be afraid, but also no shortage of promises from you. No shortage of evidences of your power. God, would you turn our eyes this morning from the things that would cause our hearts to fear to those attributes of yourself that remind us of your power, of your goodness, and that bring us comfort and peace that allow us to trust. God, as we trust you, would you then allow us to love our friends and neighbors? Would you allow us to live lives of gratitude and praise? Thank you, God, that you have provided for all of this in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this morning. It's been a pleasure to open up God's Word with you. We want to invite you to join us again next week. Uh, Next week, as we traditionally do on the first Sunday of a month, we'll be practicing communion. And as we did on Good Friday, we'll be providing a time in our broadcasted service to uh, have you take communion with those that you're gathered with, with your families. So you might want to keep that in mind as you're making essential trips to the grocery store this week and pick up uh, bread and grape juice that you can use as we lead you through communion next week.
as you go this week into the world around you. Go in Christ.